Philippians. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're here. We're here not to service any of your needs because you have none. We're here to be served feed now upon your word upon this grace upon the grace working in our hearts peace oh let us revel in the gospel this morning let us revel in who you really and truly are, though we shut you out so often. Work in us, your people. Draw us near to you. To the glory of our Lord, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, second week in the book of Philippians, we're going to focus on being a slave, and we're going to focus on God's grace, peace to us, which is all found right here in the very formal opening of the letter. The sender, who's it from, the recipients to whom, and the formal blessing to you. But Paul's Paul. Paul's the apostle. Paul's the great theologian, and he doesn't waste words. And so I contend, though it's a formal opening of a letter in the Roman Empire in the first century, it's much more than that for Paul in these words. And so first, we look at the sender section, how they opened letters. We put them at the end after the letter. Sincerely yours, so and so. Here, at the very beginning, the writer says who it is that's writing. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Now first... Right? Paul is in Rome. He's under house arrest. Timothy, oh, he loves Timothy. A younger man in the ministry of the word with Paul now for many years. He's like a son to him. Timothy is with Paul, serving Paul, helping Paul. And so that's why he writes Paul and Timothy. But Timothy is not writing this letter, and it's not a joint letter that's being written by both of them. 
The letter is in the first person singular throughout. I, me, my. Or like he says in, in chapter 2, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. So, but he's just recognizing Timothy and the Philippians know Timothy. They love Timothy. Timothy's been there a number of times. He was there at the first planting of the church. They want Timothy actually to come to them. They're asking Paul to send him. And so that's why he opens up Paul and Timothy. And then the next word, douloi, slaves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul uses that term slaves in the opening of a letter only here in Philippians and in Romans and in the book of Titus. Clearly, Paul wants to communicate that he, Timothy, and the Philippians, they are owned by their master. They are ruled over by the Lord Jesus Christ. Implying that being Christ's slave is true for all Christians. As, as Paul wrote to the whole church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Hear the words. You are not your own. You don't have freedom anymore in that sense. You don't belong to yourself. You are not your own because you were bought with a price. And therefore, glorify God in your body. That's slave lingo. And just remember, like the vast majority of every culture throughout human history, the Roman Empire also was a slave culture. There are three ways that people became slaves in the Roman Empire. One is by war, conquest. You lose if you're not killed, you're taken back. Healthy body, sold as slaves. Secondly, those slaves have babies. They're born to slaves. They're born as slaves. Thirdly, was many people, you know, basically day laboring, trying to get by hand to mouth, would choose, this is, this is this insecurity, I can't take it anymore. And they would sell themselves into slavery for economic security. That's the cultural context that Paul's living in in choosing to use the word doulos, slave, or douloi, plural, slaves. And it is foundational to Christianity that no one can become a slave of Christ until they realize that by nature they are slaves of sin. We're all slaves of sin. Actually, in these three ways of the Roman Empire. First, every human being is born a slave of sin. 
Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you lived, and you were by your nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we're also slaves by being conquered by sin, mastered by sin. Paul writes in Romans 6, 17, you once were slaves of sin. And we are Sinners by debt. The wages of sin is death. There's a price for redemption, in other words, because of our sin. And that price to be freed from the slavery of sin is death. And in the Roman Empire, there were three ways that slaves could gain their freedom, and many, many, many did. It's what free man means, once a slave. When you see that in the New Testament, no longer a slave. One way was that you served out your period of time if there was some kind of a contract of what, why you're in slavery and your years of service are up and now you gained your freedom. Secondly, slaves, many of them had the right to earn money and they would earn money and save money and they could buy their freedom from their master by paying it off. Thirdly, someone else could come in who has money and they would do this and they would pay the ransom price for the slave's freedom. But now, spiritually, there's only one way of deliverance from slavery to sin. There's only one way to get that debt paid off. And that is it has to be bought by the only person who could pay the price. No human being can ever purchase their own freedom. They can never earn enough to pay the price. And a person who's never experienced what we're talking about right here this morning, a slave of Christ. Those are such joyful words to Paul. A slave, a doulos, my master, Jesus Christ. A person may think, well, look at that, just okay. You're a slave to one master and you're transferred to a slave of another and that's not 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 what it's like there's no comparison except in our allegiance our allegiance and love of the master he is our master that's why paul has no problem using this analogy he owns us and for christians who really get it the response of that is, what a relief. Thank God. Oh, it's so good. The creator of the universe bought me for himself forever. And we are therefore slaves or servants of God. But that brings us then to what does that mean for us? And it means be, be very careful of how you picture how you are to serve God. 
Because serving God has no analogy in slavery to the way that we would serve a human master or a human employer who pays us to do the commands he or she gives us. Because there is an approach to trying to serve God that is an insult to God. Paul put it this way in Acts chapter 17, verse 25. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Don't ever do that. Since he himself gives to, to all mankind life, breath, and everything. God, in other words, he has no needs ever that he would look to the creature to do for him so that, thank you, now I have no more lack in that area because you have served me. There is a way in your minds, in your attitudes, in your disposition to go about serving God, obeying a command that would belittle Him as needy of your service. And that would exalt you. He had need, just like an employer does. You did them a service that they needed or they wouldn't have hired you. And therefore they know they owe you. And God never owes. He doesn't owe you a thank you. Because the kind of master he is, is the creator. Eternally, infinitely, all-sufficient one, utterly needless before he ever flung into existence everything that is not God. For from him and through him and back to him are all things. It is his joy as the master to command you a slave of his for your good. No wonder Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Serve the Lord. Do it. Serve Him with gladness. We serve the Lord with gladness because we don't bear any burden of thinking, I hope I do it right so God's really, really happy and I, I've ple I pleased Him because He got His need met. Don't want to disappoint my employer. They might fire me. There's no place for that thinking in Christ. We're servants. And that means we are to do what he tells us. That's what Paul is driving at. But God is unique. Isaiah the prophet put it this way in Isaiah 64, verse 4. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, 
Think about all the religions and all the paganism and, 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 and all the Baal worship, or the Greek and Roman gods. It, it's no, no, no. No one's ever heard of a God like this, the one true God. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts or works for those who wait for him. All other religions with their so-called gods, all of them are saying to human beings, do, do, and do, and then you'll get the prize at the end of the rainbow. You'll get the paycheck. But the God of the Bible, never. He is utterly and eternally self-sufficient. And the great news of the gospel is that He has a goal in creation and in redemption. And that goal is that He will go get for Himself a people. That He will be for them for all eternity. As Jesus said, I did not come to be served. But I came to serve. To lay down my life as a ransom. Price paid for your freedom for many. And so we serve the Lord with gladness as Christians because we are to rejoice in His commands because we're of faith, because we trust what He tells us about those commands. The Master says, do this, and don't do that. And the faith is, you really do love me. You really are looking out for my eternal good. That's why you tell me. That's not like an employer telling you what to do. That's like a medical doctor saying, look, I don't have any need. You don't come here for me. Well, I'm going to give you some commands, though, and it's not doing me any good one way or another. I'm here for you. If you want to live, go kill the bacteria, get this filled, and do the directions on the bottle. If you trust your physician, then you will obey him. Psalm 123, verse 2. Listen to this. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He has mercy on us. The way that we serve God so that He gets all the glory, not just some of it, is constantly like that, looking to Him to meet our. His commands, His directions, as our Master, are for our joy 
and for his glory forever. And so Paul opens up this letter. Paul and Timothy, he loved Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Which means Paul knows. Jesus says to him, Paul, I want you to go do this. And Paul understands that it is ultimately God serving his needs. As Paul, an undeserving wretch, gets to participate in the gospel during this short, brief life, now in prison, but it will redound forever and ever and ever in the promised resurrection. Oh, it's a happy word for Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the sender section. That then, the next formal part of the opening of letters is the addressee section. To whom is he writing? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That's how we know this is written to the church in Philippi. We call them the Philippians. Along with your overseers and deacons, we see that church structure is, it's not just a bunch of Christians hanging out in the city. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Let's get together. There is a structure. They know who each other are by name. And there's leadership in the, in the oversight of the elders. It's called overseers. And, and then there are deacons and to, to, to do a lot of the other tasks and make sure this stuff gets done because this is a community. But again, look at those first four words. To all the saints. The saints. That's who he's writing to. The hagioi. That, that's the Greek word. Holy ones. The set-apart ones. The Christians, in other words, in Philippi, they were not super Christians. Because you hear the word, the saints. Like in Roman Catholicism. See, in the Roman church, when you think, well, there's a saint. No, that person's not a saint yet. Should we make them a saint? You, th there's this, this whole criterion that they go through after the person has actually died. Is there enough evidence for us to canonize them by the organization of the Church of Rome and therefore to refer to them as a saint? Like St. Aquinas or St. Augustine or St. Francis, do not read that kind of thing ever into what Paul is writing here when he says to the saints. The New Testament makes it clear that every born-again person, evidenced by their faith in Jesus Christ, all of them are saints. Now, that word saint, hagios, it could mean and refer to someone's development and conduct in holiness. Hagios is of the same root as the word sanctification or to sanctify, to grow in holiness. It's used that way. And the other way it's used as it is used here, 
is to refer to God taking something and sanctifying or making it a saint or setting it apart over here for himself, for his holy use. Saints in the Bible, they are those persons who are on a journey, who are pursuing holiness. They are being sanctified, but one's level of holiness, no matter how great, has nothing to do with them being a saint or making them a saint. He or she is a saint because they have been set apart by God. The gospel came to them. The Spirit acted. They were changed. They believed to all the saints in Philippi. The Old Testament talks about sanctifying objects, making them holy. Build the lampstand and then they're going to do the sanctification of it. It's going to be set apart. Or the laver in the tabernacle. Set apart. In a sense, God's making those things saints. Set apart. Just for a moment, because I just love the passage. Listen to how Peter talks about this. This is true of all the saints in Philippi and throughout the world today. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And here it is. Here's the word. You're a hagios. You're a holy nation. Set apart nation. Uh, it's, it's so good, i got to keep reading now. Hey, you're a people for His own possessions that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. God said the reason you exist as a saint is because I'm going to show you things now and for eternity, but now in order that you will proclaim how great I am. He goes on to say, once you see, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There was a time when you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if you have come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you who love Jesus, then you're one of these that Paul talks about. A saint. And now the third section of the opening is then the blessing. It's right there, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Ooh. Usually the other part wouldn't be added. Grace 
and or open letter. Peace! But here he says, from God. That's purposeful. From God our Father and from the Lord, Jesus Christ. Now again, most of these words... They're standard. It's how letters were opened. It's the blessing section. Here the word grace in the Greek, charis. That's the Gentiles, how they would, Gentiles would, would use the word charis, grace to you. The word peace, arene in the Greek, that's how Jews would do it, translating shalom. But having said that, though it's standard, Paul clearly is purposeful, transforming what is standard into something deep, theological. See, we know, if you know Paul, in his gospel, grace is a huge theological word. For Paul, if you summed it up, Grace for him means God's goodness giving to those who could never deserve it or earn it. It is utterly unmerited. And so Paul opens this letter up, grace to you. So as Paul unpacks grace throughout his letters, this is what he's talking about. The God who made you, who from all eternity is infinitely happy and joyful in himself. Grace means that God is reaching out and he is bringing unworthy sinners to himself to experience his joy of the Holy Trinity. That's Paul's understanding of grace. And that grace back in the late 1700s hit a captain of a ship who made it his business for a while to transport kidnapped, stolen human beings from Africa to be sold into slavery if they survived the, the voyage, which many did not, as they were slowly tortured to death down below. Seasickness. And grace. This same grace, Paul opens this letter up with grace to you from God the Father. That grace invaded John Newton's life and he wrote the words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Grace and peace to you. Peace. Peace comes from God because grace 
saves the saints. Grace saves the saints because God's wrath that was toward them was turned away for, from them and it was fully dispensed on His Son, Christ Jesus. And that's what brought peace. That is what caused God to be reconciled. Okay with you, a sinner, whom He has brought to Himself. He is now at Peace with you. That's what the angels talking about that night after Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Which is the saints. This is much bigger than world peace, which will never actually happen until Jesus returns. This is the creator of the universe at peace with every sinner made saint because of grace. That great line Paul writes in Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been made right, justified before God, justified by faith, therefore what? Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace there is God's peace toward us. It's objective. It's objectively true for every Christian. Don't you wish our subjective experience always matched that? That's something we need to struggle for in our lives, in our walk, in our prayer. Peace is something that we need subjectively, to constantly go toward. Listen to, to how Paul refers to this in the book of Philippians in chapter 4, starting with verse 6. He says to them and to us, do not be anxious. Okay, that's kind of like the opposite of feeling peace. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, that peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, 
One thing I want you to notice about all of Paul's letters, and true here in Philippians, is this. That all 13 of his letters that are in the New Testament begin with grace and peace to you. And he's going to write. And they all end with something like this. Grace. Grace of the God the Father. Grace of the Lord Jesus. Of the, grace. Be with you. At the beginning of his letters, grace to you. And at the end, grace be with you. It's so consistent, it's got to mean something. And I think we should see it like this. Paul knows that this letter, and every letter that he's writing, he knows that this letter to the Philippians is a channel of God's grace to them. As Paul, an apostle, Paul has in his head that grace to you, it's about to flow to you. As you sit there and hear this publicly read to you, grace is coming through my words. Infallible, inspired by the Spirit. He knew his place. Grace to you in what you're about to read. And then, as the letters close, comes to an end. He knows you're all going to be dismissed in a little bit. You're going to get up and you're going to go back home. And he ends them all with now, not grace to you, that's just come to you. Now know this and what's happened and think about the words. Grace will go with you. As he says at the end of Philippians, he puts it this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So as you leave this church, Paul's saying, you're leaving the gathering after hearing the letter read out loud. May God's grace continue with you as you go home and raise your kids and wake up and go to the office or the workplace or fate, fight daily temptation in your life. Grace be with you. So, Here's the take-home. It's a long take-home. Here's the take-home from this passage this morning. Allow God's grace to go with you. Trusting in grace. That's the core of the Christian life. And I don't mean, and neither does Paul. I'm going to try to show this. It doesn't mean, oh yeah, don't you remember back then when you became a Christian? You're saved by grace. Oh yeah, just keep thinking about that as you go through and fight temptation and marital strife and the world falling apart. It's not what he means. He means, oh yeah, you're always thankful for that. But you need grace, fresh grace, power of grace, God's grace today. And in an hour from now, that's the Christian life. God's grace being dispensed to us through the Scripture. 
Grace to you. Here it comes. It's coming. Truth. God speaking. God's word. Internal eyes. That grace is in the Christian life being applied to the heart by God, the Holy Spirit. That's why Christians don't just sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. Back then, a wretch like me. But it goes on. The Christian goes on to say, it is grace that has brought me safe. Thus far, and it is grace that will lead me home. And we desperately need it because our lives as Jesus-loving Christians is that we constantly tend to grow weak, hardened, cold toward God. And it shows up in our actions and our sinfulness. So the question is, Christians care about that. Where are we going to find strength when we're so weak and done? And one biblical answer to that is, you find it in grace. This is how Hebrews 13 verse 9 put it. Do not... Be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart. Okay, there it is. This immaterial aspect of us. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods. By grace. And Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1 and he tells him, You then, Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Today, Timothy! So daily grace to our hearts, Paul is saying. The analogy is clear. It's what food is to your body. You will die eventually without it. You feel weak. You need calories to burn, to function. And the Word of God, that's His grace coming to us by the power of the Spirit, is the calories for our souls. Because our life is like what Paul said in Acts 14. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And boy do we feel done, weak, because stuff comes and our hearts waver. In the future, the next week, the road looks, I can't, I can't get through that, it's impossible. Like Paul, he got to the place, he tells us that he felt, I, I, I asked the Lord, I went to prayer three times, please, take this messenger of Satan that just harasses my life away. He's looking for grace. But it came in another form than the way he wanted it. 
He says, but the Lord said to me, no. Well, okay. but, but, but the Lord said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Because, Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. One kind of grace was given to Paul in the context of the other grace he was asking for got denied. And then Paul responded with a heart of faith. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We should just sit for five minutes in quiet. Think about times we thought we were totally at the end. Look back. Amazing how the Lord came and rescued you. In your soul, with His grace. This is the Christian life, which is only temporary. I read the future this morning when we opened up this service. That is not yet. So here is the reality. You are not meant to like suffering. And you should. You're not meant to say, I love the pain. I love the fear. I love the broken relationships. You're not meant to do that. You don't like it. And thus, we pray for grace. The grace of, of relief from this. And sometimes the Lord waits a while before He gives it. Other times He may give it immediately. Sometimes not until you're dead. So when He doesn't spare us, you are to always know this. When you're not spared from the thing that is immediately on your mind or in your body, there is always grace there. My grace is sufficient for you. There's always grace there for your eternal good and for the good of the gospel. In this very letter of Philippians, Paul's writing while in prison in Rome. Yes, Paul prayed. Get me out of here. It's been a long time. I want to get back to ministry out there. No, no, no. But there's grace. And Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1 about his imprisonment. Okay, that's a miserable situation. And he says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There was grace. 
The life of faith is not merely looking back at the cross at grace. That's what is a life of thankfulness now for us who have been born again. Our daily walk is a trusting in the grace of God for today in your situations. The Apostle Peter, he wrote an, an epistle, a letter to all the churches throughout the Roman Empire. And he ends that letter this way. Because many of them were really going through it. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Think about that. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, He will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All grace means the grace to have peace when you have it, and the grace to suffer. That's what Paul in the book of Philippians is driving at when he says in chapter 4, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have, I've learned the secret of facing plenty. Everything I need, it's all met. It's the same secret of facing hunger. Of abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And so Paul opens up Philippians with grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as you read. And he ends it with Grace, grace be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Oh, we need it. The Holy Spirit tells us through the Apostle John, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know? And these, are, these are sobering words. We know because we love brothers we love fellow Christians he says that's how you know okay if you're normal that should make you have the experience of feeling desperate at times in your life God help me be more loving what's the key the key is grace to you as you hear God's voice speak to you through the rest of the letter. The key is then as you get up and go about your day now with a word in your heart, grace be with you. I'm just going to close with one example or illustration of the power of grace. 
It's a biblical example. You can turn there if you want. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes to the Corinthians, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Don't you want to know about the grace of God? This grace that we've been talking about. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, including the church of Philippi. And he explains what he means by that grace of God in them. For in, <coughs> for in <coughs> a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave to this offering to the church in Jerusalem. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. He says to the Corinthians, Corinthians, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay. They're like you and me. Every sin that we deal with, how were they in this context, according to Paul, freed from the very natural love of money? Well, part of the answer is he just said it in verse 2. Their abundance of joy that was the power that broke the back of if to the extent there's any sin in their not giving, in their love of money, it was their joy that's freed them to give to that offering. But then the question is, where'd the joy come from? And Paul answered that in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. That's God's very present grace working in them, producing joy. And Paul's point is to say to the Corinthians, Corinthians, that grace, it's available to you. And that grace in all of <coughs> our lives and everything we deal with is constantly available to us. So let us as, as slaves continue to look to the hand of our master, living moment by moment in that amazing grace. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you didn't spare your son. You gave him and slaughtered him on a cross. Raised him from the dead as the first fruits of all of those sinners whom you have given to him. We thank you for that. Amazing grace. 
the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have sent in his name to dwell within us. Causing that grace to work in us. That which is pleasing in your sight to the glory of your Son, Jesus.